Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Cleo's Battles, Historiography in Practice and Contesting History, talks to The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about archival research and whether the enthusiasm for reinterpreting the past as a means of influencing current controversies encourages historians to stray too far away from the available source material. Professor Jeremy Black, um, all my years being interested in history and studying history, I was always led to believe that archival material was the primary and most important source upon which historians uh, could base their research upon. Um, But I went through all my school days um, without having access to archive material and pretty much almost all my undergraduate days studying history as well. And it wasn't until I was doing my PhD that um, handling documents, primary documents, became a daily part of my practice as someone studying history. In your experience, do we approach the study of history uh, in a way which gives too much preeminence for professional historians to have archival research uh, at their core, but it's retained an almost monastic mystery to to everyone else? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I don't think uh, history as understood belongs to any particular group, and I would include professional historians about to the archives per se, but they do have to understand 
the granulated nature of history instead of being imag- imagining that it's some you know background for their journalism. Yes, but uh, is there not a, a role for the historian, even the popular historian, to uh, d- discuss ideas uh, of history? Oh, well, obviously, and you get excellent popular history. I mean, I was asking sponsoring specifically your question, mm. uh, is archival history overrated? And I think we're saying no, it's underrated by a lot of people that get public attention. But there are good um, uh, popular historians that are archivally very rich. I mean, if you read, for example, Andrew Roberts on Salisbury, or you read James Holland on World War Two, or Peter Caddick Adams on World War Two, you're reading people who are writing for a popular market and are well aware of the nature of archival sources and well aware of what you can do with them. There is no natural. Let's be clear about this. There are academic historians whose standards are very low, particularly those who at the present moment are embracing identity politics. And quite frankly, uh, many of these people, I mean, the laugh is that they're marking students. Most of them don't deserve um, a degree, let alone an academic position. So you've got academic historians of that type, and yet you've got got non-academic historians who are often of the very highest of quality, producing first-rate work, which is well worth looking at. And indeed, I would say that of all the academic subjects at the moment, history, possibly with archaeology, um, is one that you don't actually need to go to university in order to be able to be, uh, you know, well-informed, catching up with and aware of the most recent work, and in a sense, therefore, excellently taught. And in many respects, you would probably be worse taught if you went to university, um, or worse informed, certainly, than if you were aware of the uh, broader currents of public debate. Mm-hmm. So is it, um, the, is it the case that uh, uh, the uh, focus on primary archives, though, there, there will be those who say, and it's not a view I, I'm endorsing, by the way, I'm just uh, giving the case, there are those who say that if you immerse yourself in uh, primary material, you, you cease to have uh, sufficient distance from the creators of that material, uh, and one must, you know, not to say that one mustn't uh, look at primary materials, but one shouldn't become so immersed in them that one can't stand back with a greater de- uh, degree of objectivity. Yeah, but there's nothing incompatible between those two things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's nothing incompatible between knowing how to do your shoelaces up and going for a walk. I mean, you know, the, 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 I mean, somebody who is working on the archives is somebody who is going to understand the motivation and r- rationale uh, of the uh, protagonists and others at the time and of how people perceived it at the time. That doesn't uh, preclude you also, as you put it, standing back. Though mm-hmm. The danger if you stand back is that you read into it uh, values and interpretations which may well be of meaning to you at to, to the moment but may well actually completely fail to understand um, the values and motivations of people at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if we just take a, a little historical... Uh, broad view on this. I mean, I'm wondering if there's a a useful distinction to be made between some of the what were called antiquarians, um, uh, people like the the, the, um, 17th century MP Sir Robert Cotton or the uh, Elizabethan Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, who um, made 
collecting historic documents um, really a, a, a key part of their work. And uh, d does that make them different from historians? I'm just wondering where in, in the history of this, the, the, the age of the antiquarian uh, uh, went, if you think it has gone, or has it just become librarian now, or, or the, the professional historian moved in? Well, I don't think there's any, again, necessary incompatibility. I think that's very much taking an either or. Mm. Um, as you will know, if you've read my book, Charting the Past on the Historical Worlds of 18th Century England, you have those who you decry as antiquarians producing quite significant uh, work. Um, Archdeacon Cox, for example, one of the greatest historians of late 18th century, uh, could be regarded as you know, bestriding your, your segregation. All the work in local history was grounded in part on an understanding of the documents that provided a guidance to that locality. So obviously there was what the, in the 18th century they termed universal history, mm. um, the history of different cultures in order to try and provide sort of understanding in a sort of non-providential sense of human development. Um, and that was definitely not, uh, as you put it, antiquarian. doesn't mean it was necessarily uh, more rigorous or better. I mean, you know, I mean I'm, I'm rather defeated by this because I, it seems to me that that's a very false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And it's a classic example of the use in the 18th century of what you get today, which is today people will tell you that what they work on methods that they use are relevant and important to what other people do are inconsequential or, as you put it, antiquarian. That's, quite frankly, a use of um, sort of conceptual methods and methodology to take part in political battles. It doesn't tell you... Um, you know, there are books on this, for example, on, there's a very good book I cited in one of my works, I think in my work on contesting history, a very good French study by a woman called Grell, G-R-E-L-L, on how the 18th century historians who attacked what they termed antiquarians were in fact just empire building for their own benefit. Mm -hmm. you know, in other words, it's not an objective criteria. And if you think about it, going back, um, if you think about it, the idea in the Renaissance that the close textual understanding of classical and later documents in order both to understand the classical world but also to understand the medieval period was very significant in what we term the Renaissance. And it was also very significant in what we term the Reformation, the idea of taking away what were presented fairly or unfairly as subsequent accretions. Now, it's rather bizarre to say, well, we're going to give these people plus marks for the Renaissance and minus marks because we subsequently decide they're antiquarians. What you're talking about is textual exegesis and textual exegesis, the understanding of documents, the understanding of specificity, is something that is necessary if you want to get as close as possible to understanding why things occur and what people think about. I mean, if you don't have textual exegesis, we end up with the curious mess we're in today, but this mess has long been prefigured in previous ages, in which, you know, you end 
end up in some sort of post-modernist smogs board in which every kind of uh, perception, every kind of argument, every kind of some idiot saying they feel something is regarded as of equal validity. Well, you know, you might want to say that, and, you know, I'm a Democrat, but the point about democracy is it doesn't mean that everybody's views are of equal accuracy. They may well have the right to express them as part of a political society in which we want people to feel that they're participating, but it doesn't mean that they are all of equal accuracy. I think that's very significant, and it's certainly true of how people think about and that study and understand the past, and therefore, by extension, the present and the future. Is it... Uh, I mean, I'm trying to unpick how recently this r movement within historical study has uh, become more obsessed with uh, contemporary feelings and uh, emotions and interpretations, that, you know, as if the, the historian, you know, like a kind of lifestyle journalist, is... is placing him or herself at the centre of the narrative. Um, and to what extent are we all returning to uh, archives as the primary, not exclusive, but the primary focus of research? I, I mean, how and why have we moved away from that? Well, I don't think... Again, I think you're trying to have a sort of neoplatonic concept of an of a inherent state of history in any one period. And I would argue that history as a presentation of the past has an enormous variety and you know if you look at some of my works I've written several books on historiography contesting history as one Cleo's battles or another I'm not sure that we're necessarily more partisan whatever we means by that than for example uh, people in Europe in the 16th century debating the validity of particular types of Christian organization so um, you know I think one has to be aware that commitment to an interpretation of the past is scarcely new. Mm. Um, I think uh, the, uh, what one could argue is that um, what you're seeing at the present moment is a, um, in part a crisis of academe, which has been going on for a while, Obviously, there were significant writers in the United States drawing attention to the crisis as early as the 1960s, in which, as it were, the liberal scholarly ideal of the 19th century of essentially um, research-based analysis and a kind of cool, secular um, scholarship uh, are trying to draw back from partisan involvement that that ideal kind of history as science, uh, whether or not it was ever true, and we can debate that separately, and some marvellous stuff, for example, on Ranker's uh, politics, but whether or not that was ever true has clearly been exploded in the last 50 years, and you have the absurdity of many of the uh, humanities and social science courses at the present moment, certainly in British and certainly in American universities, uh, but not only there. You could argue, as I've said, that that is less significant in our cultures because there is such a dynamic public sphere in which, quite frankly, who cares what a lot of silly academics say? Or you could argue it does matter because they're in a position to propagate a system of indoctrination. You could play it either way, and I dare say both are, uh, both are true. Now, that 
is a aspect of the situation. So a crisis in modern higher education. Um, you could link that up to the idea that the notion of, we could discuss that philosophically or practically, that the idea of scientific history is always going to be problematic doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, unworthy, but it's always going to be problematic. That's a second uh, approach we could take. Um, and we could, and remember with all these approaches, we need to then add to the granularities of time, country, and within those different historical schools. Three, we could say, oh, well, one of the problems with what you and I are talking about is we're presenting history as a rather static form of interest and engagement with the past, but that what you actually get are developing um, subjects and approaches, and that some of these are more or less um, uh, appropriate for what we call archival research. Um, my own view for what it is worth is that archival research is significant as a method, in other words, a method of the judicious handling of evidence, the understanding of contextualization, the asking questions about um, the veracity of what is put in texts, and the asking questions of the veracity of people that are using non-text-based analysis. All of that is appropriate for every type of history, whether you're looking at the kind of genealogical sort of, you know, self-abuse which you get on television channels in which people are encouraged to emote on their ancestors, or whether you're looking at, you know, more rigorous forms. Mm. Is the digitisation of uh, archives and the way in which um, it's becoming much easier for uh, people who are not professional academics to, to have access to uh, primary material in that way. Do you see that as, as a positive uh, factor in that it, it should encourage more people to go back to the primary material rather than, than treating history as a, as a branch of sociology? Or, um, or do you see dangers in, in um, effectively open access for, for archival material? No, I don't see any dangers in open access. I mean, I see dangers if you blow up archives um, and destroy uh, evidence of the past, but I don't see any dangers. And this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I've written several books on newspaper history, and newspapers have been available. I mean, well before digitization, you know, you had things like, I don't know if you ever remember it, something called microfilm. Yes, uh, I do. I do well. um, so, you know, I did a lot of my research in the 1980s, um, sitting in the dark in front of a microfilm machine in Durham, uh, having, you know, purchased um, uh, microfilm copies of newspapers, uh, and, you know, some of which were made specially for me, and some of which were just already available, and then borrowing others through interlibrary loan. And that was long available. Um, and, you know, I can't see what's wrong about it, and what it also meant is that one could teach. I mean, I used to teach a course on uh, newspapers, and uh, obviously it was nice for students to have access to and handle originals from the 18th century and 19th century, but there was also the possibility of extending their range by, you know, showing them uh, more 18th century newspapers uh, on electronic means, or as mm. there was film. Ditto, I mean, for example, um, the state papers, a lot of the state papers, a lot of the Newcastle papers went on to Newcastle being the Duke of Newcastle.
would certainly um, urge people who are interested in the past to try and engage as soon as possible with material of that type. Um, so, uh, you know, I know I'm not, I'm not troubled by that at all. And in, I can take it a stage further. One of the things, and I was on the um, committee that drew up the last national curriculum, Uh, 
motivation was, and instead they're being ruthlessly uh, deployed in accordance with, you know, modern modern perceptions of um, uh, that are that meet um, the criteria that are being being advanced. And, you know, I find that rather unhelpful. I suppose if I was a woke cultural historian, a cultural war historian... Maybe you are. Maybe well, you are. well I'm, I'm hiding it well, but uh, uh, just um, assuming for a moment I am, uh, I... If you are, you'll do very well in the academic profession. <laughs> Particularly, let me recommend to you, do as little teaching as possible, because they won't... Mm. Work, because, you know, the better teachers tend not to get uh, promoted. What you want to do is sit on, sit on an equality and diversity committee, then another equality and diversity committee, then go and, um, as it were, crawl to whoever is the vice-chancellor, the provost or the deputy vice-chancellor in your area, and push yourself up the administrative system. Probably never write a scholarly book, well, then most of these people have never written a scholarly book, but write a few apersus. That way your, your career will go probably quite well in the modern age. Well, sadly, that's probably the best career advice I've ever been given. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Let, let me uh, just uh, indulge me at the moment. So here I am. I've taken your advice and uh, I'm producing um, works of history and approaches to history which have very little uh, basis in archival research, but a, a, a large basis in my own uh, particular prejudices. Um, I, I might defend my position by saying, you know, the, the archives are the archives generally of, of, the, of the oppressors, of the state, of the aristocrats, of the landowners, of the plantationers. I, in my history, want to give voice to the voiceless who've left almost no or very light archival record. Uh, therefore, I, I need to approach history in this non-archival way. Well, if you're looking at history over the last 150 years, I mean, we can talk about earlier than that in a second. If you're looking about history of the last 150 years in the West, I'd be very surprised if you weren't able to find quite a few sources of value to you. Now, if you were to go back to a period of, let us say, um, I mean, one of my interests is military history. Let us say you are looking at the period of the 16th century. You will find that, as you put it, the voiceless include most of the social elite who weren't in the practice of necessarily writing at any great length. Some of them did, but most of them did not write at any great length or necessarily in any great reflection about these matters. Um, and you've got to be cautious about assuming that written sources are necessarily those of a quite clear divide between privilege and non-privilege. For a lot of history, it is, and in a lot of cultures, it is the religions and the, as it were, priesthoods or clergy or whatever term you wish to use, that um, sort of satisfied them, ran them, were their representatives, who are the principal sources of record and not necessarily those who were uh, non-religious but socially um, significant. If what you're asking, which is the bigger point, which is, do 
will material provide you with all the answers to the question? And obviously the answer is no. That's quite obviously the case. In other words, is there a, uh, a danger that you are tracked by your sources? Well, of course that's the case. But the thing is, you want to at least start with those sources that are available. To not look at the sources that are available can get you into dead trouble. So if you take a highly emotive issue at the present moment, which is the you know the horrors of the slave trade, mm. um, the uh, you would be ill advised not to look at those sources that are available. Um, that doesn't mean that that provides you with all uh, accounts, and it doesn't mean that it provides you with necessarily any particular guidance to what the experience of being enslaved in a war in between African polities and then sold by one of those African polities to some European merchant or an Asian merchant, you know, and then transported either across the Atlantic or across the Red Sea or the Indian Ocean. You know, you're not going to get much of that experience, um, but to not look at those sources that are available, you're going to get badly unstuck. So, you see, I deliberately emphasise the point that, you know, um, slaves were sold. Very few slaves were actually seized. Um, some were, but very few was actually seized. They were generally sold. Now, um, if you are not going to look at uh, sources and are just going to sit there in some kind of you know, modern notion of how you think a past racialist world operated, you're not going to really want to engage with sources mm. and talk about the actual cost of purchasing slaves and the actual problems entailed of gaining slaves because what you're doing is you're presenting some account in which supposedly um, um, capitalist means are going to act as a ready um, ready source of, as it were, dissolving all obstacles. Well, you know, you might believe that, um, but you need, if you do believe that, to try and demonstrate it. Mm, how is, and I'm thinking particularly, though it need not be exclusively about uh, American and British archives, um, how are recent practices, recent meaning the last 30 years or so, of uh, you know, increasingly not communicating by written record or by um, uh, not deliberately not leaving a, a record trace in order to uh, uh, avoid uh, a, um, you know, an effort by journalists to, to, to have access to, uh, uh, um, uh, to, to, to what, what, what you've written in a, in a request. Um, how is that going to change uh, archival research for historians in 40, 50 years' time trying to get to the nub of uh, certainly uh, uh, government history uh, during our own times? Well, several things to say. First of all, this isn't new. I mean, uh, go back to the start of the use of the telephone in the 19th century, so this isn't new. And we actually, I mean, you know, there are accounts of Gladstone taking information over the telephone. So, you know, this isn't new. Number two, uh, do bear in mind that there is always a limit to the amount of information available. I mean, the British state, not because it's involved in some conspiracy for the Guardian to scream about, the British state destroys two of the major types of archive material. Shock, horror. Number one, your medical records will eventually get destroyed. Mm -hmm. And number two, your tax records will eventually get destroyed. You know, there is simply no 
know, I mean, leaving aside the significance of privacy, which I think is a significant matter, it, the reason there is, you know, there are reason, many reasons other than, as it were, technological or conspiratorial ones to explain some of what we've got and some of what we haven't got. So I think that's always an issue. Clearly, the more experienced you are as a scholar, and in this field, the scholars that tend to be really experienced are archivalists. Mm. Um, I was very struck. I uh, sat on the board of the British Records Association for 15, 16 years and edited their journal archives. And I was always struck at how much my colleagues on this committee knew so much more about archival sources than the average academic historian. So you have to really understand how archives are, are constructed, how material is deposited, whom, how it is catalogued, uh, and how it is made available. All of those are very significant if you wish to, uh, to look at these issues. Now, I remember an article some years ago in the Journal of the Society of Archivists which argued it compared paper, I think it was papyrus paper, and then various other cine, uh, uh, various other forms, uh, and argued that, of course, all forms of data have um, risk elements built into their longevity. Um, clearly, even if you take an individual format, let's say you take paper, uh, linen rag-based paper of the 18th century lasts better and is easier to use. I know I've used enough of it. Uh, the 19th century wood pulp paper. Um, and again, you know, the climate that you are in will affect the friability of the paper. It will affect the sorry, the friability of the ink. It will affect the the nature of the um, the paper you're using. It you know, etc. 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 So all of those factors play a role, and you shouldn't assume that necessarily the present formats are ipso facto worse. I mean, one of the problems with paper history, and I've spent most of my life working on paper history, in other words, where the sources are, are you know, preserved on paper, one of the problems with that is that if they're not printed, they're generally unique. Not always. Somebody sometimes wrote drafts and some people, you know, etc., etc. But, you know, we're talking about generalities here. They're uniques, which means if they get destroyed, you've had it. Mm. Whereas one of the things today is, let's say, Graham, you write a memo to somebody and press all send and 63 people get a copy. But it may well be that 50 people think, what the hell is this, and their system discards it. But it may well be that three copies survive. Well, uh, that, that would be tremendously exciting if three copies of my emails survive for her uh, future I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, some years ago, I did a book called uh, Rethinking Military History. And one of the uh, big archival sources I went through were the Little Heart papers in the Little Heart Library in King's College, London. Little Heart was a man of extraordinary arrogance, as well as, incidentally, hilariously, as the Alex Stanchett biography shows, a designer of ladies' underwear, which, of course, he had in common with Spain, Roderick Spain. <laughs> anyway, um, Little Heart couldn't be certain that people who were the recipients would realise the significance of receiving a 
letter from Sir Basil, and therefore that they might not keep it, shock horror. So what he would do is he would produce for every letter two carbons, and he would send off, obviously, the master, and he would file both of the carbons under, you know, essentially under correspondent and under theme, so that the people at the other end um, would, uh, you know, if they were sort of failing, it wouldn't matter. But the consequence of that was you can realise what a total creep the man was by seeing the letters that survived, um, whereas in fact, in many senses, he'd have been better off of destroying a lot of them. <laughs> and of course, there's also, um, there's also the case of, of politicians who've been so conscious of the verdict of history that they've written memos in fact it's something once you know claimed about Winston Churchill you, they, they would write memos or letters you know, stating uh, making statements that they thought might ultimately look good um, you know, decades later when reproduced uh, is, is that a I mean is that an overstated um, a way of, of looking at how some public figures have, uh, have have had an eye to posterity by what what they put on paper
with enjoying power profit during their own period in office, then what they're after to tell people how marvellous they were. Well, you know, I mean, it just doesn't add up. Um, I think you've got to go really back to Churchill's war years um, to have a, to see a, you know, a really great uh, prime minister. And, you know, there have obviously since then been um, some prime ministers of, of, of great ability and persistence and uh, endurance and, and pertinacity. And I think Margaret Thatcher's been the greatest since um, uh, since Churchill. I think Atlee's rather overrated. Um, but, you know, it has to be said, most of them, they might have won elections, but they're not necessarily, um, you know, done very much in office other than bugger up the Constitution and, um, you know, find jobs for their chums. Let me draw things to a close by asking a, a personal question. You spent a huge amount of time, obviously, as a professional historian in archives. What, what have been the archival discoveries for you which have fundamentally changed the way in which you've understood the periods in which you've been writing about? Right. Well, if you look at my technically, uh, which what you're talking about is what I would call technical history. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at my technically most important works are on 18th century British foreign policy, uh, with the largest one being on British foreign policy from 1783 to 93, called British Foreign Policy in an Age of Revolutions. Our big book, Cambridge University Press, about 450 pages, footnotes at the foot of the page. And I would say that really um, the archival work enabled me to understand what had happened in a way that I had not done when, as a prelude, I had read the secondary literature. And I would say the same thing earlier on. I'd spent too much of my time reading people who had, who had had, as it were, British policy as an unproblematic. And I benefited enormously from the ability to read confidential correspondence between people, private papers of both, uh, diplomats and um, ministers, in other words, not office papers, um, in which you saw much more of the politics of foreign policy, which interested me a lot. I also benefited enormously from spending a lot of time in the 1980s in European archives. I mean, I, I you know, did time in the archives in other periods. And from the kindness of particular senior archivists who, seeing that I was a serious scholar, enabled me to do things which were totally against the rules. In other words, going onto the stacks and working there, uh, working when the archives were shut, uh, opening the archives early in the morning, especially for me, uh, 101 other things like that. And that was enormously helpful. And I got a much better sense of uh, 18th century British foreign policy by reading multiple foreign sources as opposed to just doing bilateral, you know, Anglo-French, say, stuff. Uh, because it, if you're reading multiple sources, you're getting, well, triangulation to the nth degree. So I found those things really helpful. And linked to that, there was a marvellous series, which I much enjoyed, 
enjoyed uh, reading, uh, which was State Papers Confidential, which was the British intercepts and deciphers of foreign traffic. Although if I'd lived with more energy, uh, one of the things I, you know, because one can always think of lots of topics one would like to do. In addition to State Papers Confidential, I found many other intercepts in other archives, <laughs> ranging from Canberra in Australia, um, National Archives there, to, which had some very good uh, 1720s intercepts, quite a few volumes of them, um, to New York, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, if I'd had masses of time, it would have been wonderful to have produced some very major scholarly work bringing together all of the intercepts so you could have got some idea of the, you know, the equivalent of the British GCHQ of the 18th century. Um, but I was never able to do that. But that was fascinating, you know, to get a sense of um, the, uh, the espionage feed from the, uh, from the 18th century. Well, Professor Jeremy Black, uh, author of Cleo's Battles, thank you very much indeed for giving us this uh, panorama of work in the archives. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.